when it comes to larger deals, the key KPI is not MQL. That is going to drive the wrong behavior. You will sub-optimize marketing. So you will move marketing into a very small part of the whole work, which is to generate leads. If you have a company which has the rainmaker dependency, generating more leads only leads to the, the founder or the, the rainmakers are working even more because you're just increasing their burden. So you should instead look at influence. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Podium Stories. Today, we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Christopher. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Mega Deals Advisory, and he's the author of the book, Mega Deals, which you should 100% get. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a few different things related to marketing, sales, uh, selling to the enterprise. It's going to be a great episode. I'm very excited about today. Christopher, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marty. My pleasure. Love it. Absolutely. Uh, so before we kind of get into all that, uh, obviously, I know about mega deals and the work you're doing there. But for the audience that is listening and they might not be familiar, can you give us the elevator speech of what mega deals advisory is, and also the, the elevator speech of the book mega deals that kind of follows that as well? Right, that's a great question. So, so basically, uh, both very large companies and scale-ups that sell into matrix organizations. So they're not, no longer selling into pyramid organizations. They either entirely sell into matrix, matrix organizations or at least a part of their business is into matrix organizations. And if they have decisions that needs to be anchored cross functionally and cross hierarchy, and when you're entering uh, a complex mix of processes and technologies in that space, you normally struggle with a very high dependency on very few key people because it's so tricky to do the deal making in such an environment uh, and, and and so we call that a rainmaker dependency or a michael jordan dependency when when you have that you need to first of all move from selling because it's not enough to convince you and a few of your colleagues you need to convince a much larger ecosystem of people uh, but more than that you also need to you need to drive a large scale consensus and you need to get the key people to scale uh, because it's not, it's not so easy to grow with more salespeople because replicating right. the skill set and the experience required in that space that I just talked about is not very easy. Not even the biggest companies in the world have managed to do that. So most of the large companies on the Fortune 500 list, they have the same rainmaker dependency so they have a handful of top top strikers so in that space you need to go from selling to orchestrating and megadeals is the first orchestration book uh, where you combine marketing and sales to really win uh land and expand large accounts i love that and as a basketball fan i love the analogy of the michael jordan great yeah. Uh, before we kind of dive deep into that, those topics and how can organizations think about that, um, I want to kind of take it back and, and ask you about how does Christopher get here, right? How, how does Christopher, what's the story of Christopher that leads you to build mega deals and write this book? Uh, take right. me back about your experience on, so, and how it led you to, to be here today. Great. So I actually started with entrepreneurship when I was 10 years old. 
but but to I can't tell you the whole story. Oh, I won't bore the listeners with the whole story. But basically, when I was about 25, I started my first sauce company. I'm now 47, so it's 22 years ago. I started my first sauce company, and it was relevant only for larger retailers. Mm-hmm. So I, I and we eventually had a team of 40 people. I had 10 salespeople, but I realized that. Uh, Unless I was involved in the important meetings, it stopped. Right. And I couldn't figure out why. So I, I was the rainmaker. Uh, I couldn't figure out why. Why? And we had this great journey. Uh, we had this great valuation and progress with big retail names. But I was working harder and harder and harder. Uh, I think if I would work that hard now, I would completely collapse. I could do it because I was... <laughs> I was 25, so I could, you know, you know, have a completely right. different, yeah. So, so, so uh, that's my age today, and I'm tired, so yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah you, you know, so, so, um, so we, we eventually actually we had this great journey, but we bankrupted. I failed the company because I couldn't get this to scale. The amazing thing, or the it's not so amazing thing, was that even though we had this amazing product market fit, I couldn't get it to scale because. Eventually, the salespeople, they just booked meetings for me and they did a take, took the notes in the meetings and they booked the follow-ups, but I had to be in the meetings. Right. And, and so when, when crashing that company, uh, I, I was so annoyed over this. Uh, and uh, even more annoying, a few years later, a company was launched that, that is now, I mean, by far a unicorn doing the same thing. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> super annoying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> super annoying but anyway uh that triggered me to really try to crack how to scale marketing and sales when selling into these matrix organizations where decisions are kind of hard to locate even though you have a clear oh it's marty he owns the budget but his sign-off level is maybe hundred thousand euros and this contract is is maybe one million euros so he he is not even enough to go to the CEO. Sometimes you need to even go to the board. And right. you know, when you sell to someone who's selling to someone who's selling to someone, that story becomes super diluted. So um, anyway, and and then I saw that this dependency on star strikers was actually a global problem. So uh, even the biggest companies in the world, the IBM, the Ericsson, they have the same problem. Like when you look at their top revenue. They have more than 80% of the revenue coming from uh, very few accounts. So Ericsson is a good example. 17 accounts is 80% of the revenue. The cool thing is that even an IBM, less than 100 accounts is 80% of the global revenue. And if you look at those 80 accounts, you find that it's actually a relatively small number of people that are orchestrating these deals. So we looked at, for example... IBM's largest deals in Morocco, in Africa. It was led by a Swiss guy. A Swiss guy flew down for a few months to orchestrate this deal because not a single person in that organization had the experience right. and the, the, the gravitas to orchestrate such a deal. So this is a global problem. You have such a big part of the revenue coming from these big accounts and it's kind of handled by this small number of star people like the Michael Jordans. So right. it's, a, it's definitely a problem for scale-ups where you normally have a founder dependency, but it's even mm-hmm. a problem for the biggest companies in the world. So no one has cracked the scaling of the large account deals with salespeople. So you need to scale it with 
marketing. You need to build this big marketing machinery around the top people. And that's what we are good at. We are good at both coaching the sales side and setting them up for success, but also how you construct and run the marketing machinery around larger contracts. I love that. And that's where I was going with my following question about, and I've seen you write about this in a LinkedIn post about the role that marketing plays when you're selling to these larger companies is about to inspire trust. Uh, but a lot of companies also think about marketing as just a lead gen. So how should marketers uh, approach marketing when you're, they're selling to Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, and they're selling into this matrix? How does marketing change and how should they approach? What's the function of marketing yeah, at that level? Yeah. Just a, a comment on, on, on your definition. So actually, matrix organization already occurs when you're a few thousand employees. So basically, right. as soon as there are a few thousand employees, you have the matrix problem. You have right. this, oh, well, a thousand arms and legs to talk to. Uh, so just to, to your question. So first of all, you need to create a positioning and messaging framework uh, per segment and per type of deal. And you need to run it. You need to actually create it with marketing, sales, product, and customer success represented. So it's not a marketing creation or a sales creation or a customer success or a product creation. It's a cross-functional creation. So you need to do that cross-functionally per client type. Uh, so that's number one. And if you haven't done that, you, you, it's really hard to get the teams to cooperate even because they talk different well, language. They don't even right. talk the same language. You know, I have a sales rep coming with this bloody uh, PowerPoint deck that marketing has no clue about. And even um, between salespeople have different decks and different storylines. So that's the first step one. And step two is to think about, and when you create the messaging, you're not just doing it to generate interest. You're doing it to close deals. So you need to actually work with sales and marketing to figure out what are the things that happens throughout the entire buying cycle, uh, including the question about the integration with an ERP system or the rollout of this hardware or whatever, whatever, the financing of the deal. The, the ROI case, the users, you know, there's a gazillion of questions. So you need to figure out what is the whole deal cycle looking like and how can we create long and short videos that are actually taking away, not replacing people, but take away unnecessary time. So for example, when someone is, and, and for those of you listening, you can ping me on LinkedIn and, and, and ask for a meeting. I will say, yeah, let's uh, have a meeting. But before we book the meeting, uh, I I'd like you to watch this video and I will send you a video link with actually a summary of the Megadis book. It's a 22-minute summary. And I'd like you to watch that. And if you say, I'd like our organization to work in this way, then I take the meeting. Mm, so, interesting. So, and also going down to, okay, now this organization is considering running this kind of offering with us. Then we have videos that are answering most of the questions. And I'll, I, I would say, so Marty, now you, when you see, let's book the meeting and cover what you didn't think was covered in the video, because you, I won't be able to cover everything. So, so for Marty Inc., uh, we, we will cover questions that are not covered. Right. Uh, and then you build a whole marketing machinery around the content. So you make sure you can infiltrate uh, Bank Santander or whatever. You, you want to infiltrate this account 
and I have these stakeholder groups, then we are blending 14 different techniques. Some clients have called us a, a, a legal version of Cambridge Analytica. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're taking it pretty far, but within the realm of the law. Uh, right. But we, we're quite extreme on, on what things we do. Uh, so we both teach companies how to do that, but we're also taking part of the execution behind behind the the I mean underneath the client's umbrella. So right. we do both. We both help them design it, train, but we're also part of execution. And this differs case by case. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the, the first thing you were talking about, about aligning teams, right? We when we I'm run a marketing company and I often hear uh, there's alignment, there's misalignment between marketing and sales and marketing and sales cannot cooperate and that's screwing the whole thing up. Uh, but when we're talking about these larger deals, like you were saying, it's not just marketing and sales, that's a product and customer support and customer success. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that makes it exponentially much harder. How can we get those teams to cooperate and work together when we're already having problems with just getting sales and marketing people to get in the same room and talk about how we can work together? When there's so many teams, how can we how can we create that collaboration aspect? Well, well, I'll talk. I'm completely biased here, but uh, that's one of the things we're good at. So we bring all those functions in the same room. We run workshops with them to co-create the positioning and the messaging. Uh, and once they've co-created it, they easily cooperate. But there are a few a few keys to get the cooperation working. First, you need to have a, a mutual positioning and messaging. Secondly, you need to have mutually agreed KPIs. And thirdly, you need to have something we call land and expand. So you have on a bi-weekly basis, instead of having sales meetings and marketing meetings, well, you can have those as well, but I strongly recommend that the central forum is a land and expand meeting where marketing and sales are sitting in the same room going through. So first hour is typically marketing leaders and sales leaders going to the content progress and progress basically. But then you mm -hmm. have time slots for each salesperson. So they come in 20, 30 minutes each. And we'll talk about Marty's cases. We'll talk about Steven's cases, Laura's cases. And they talk about their top cases. And we both have the sales coaching around it, but we also decide how to change the machinery, the marketing machinery for each deal. So it's super it's super tailored per account, like and, and and those are that's a mutual forum. If you just have like random marketing and sales collaboration meetings, it will be nothing more than a theoretical product. I you need that. to get that's your hands dirty, work in sync uh, with the marketing and sales teams. I love that. I'm guessing it's probably even harder in the remote world, but it's, uh, it's an interesting challenge that companies at that level they need to figure out. Before we go into sales, uh, Christopher, I want to ask you about, since we're talking about the role of marketing and the function that marketing plays in, how should we measure marketing success, right? How do we measure attribution in marketing, especially a company selling at that level? What are some of the KPIs? What are some of the things that you would be looking at to make sure that marketing is, is pulling their force and moving things forward? Right. I'll give you two answers. Uh, so the first answer, which is too expensive for many, which is to do a proper marketing mix modeling around it, where you use uh, multivariable linear regression analytics on your marketing channels, your marketing span, your sales efforts, everything. Then you'll see what is driving what, with which time lag, et cetera. That is for many companies uh, too complex and too expensive. I think it's recommended for many. 
Uh, mm -hmm. I would at least have a look at it and, and I'm pretty deep into that as an expert. So ping me and I'll, I'll help you. Secondly, when it comes to larger deals, the key KPI is not MQL. That is going to drive the wrong behavior. So if, like you, if, you, if you have as your top KPI marketing, number of marketing qualified leads, you will sub-optimize marketing. So you will move marketing into a very small part of the whole work, which is to generate leads. If you have a company which has the rainmaker dependency, as all, all our clients have, generating more leads only leads to the, the founder or the, the rainmakers are working even more because you're just increasing their burden. So you should instead look at influence. For example, things like how can we as a, as a team increase the number of first-hand contacts on LinkedIn in this particular account, on that particular account? And how can we get them to engage with our content? How can we make sure they see our ads? How can they make sure they see our posts? And how can we measure their engagement? Uh, so, so that is more driving closure because the big, the big issue in the larger deal space, we're actually... As soon as you have the multifunctional decision-making, multi-hierarchical decision-maker, and you're interfering with a complex environment on the customer, you are actually, whether you like it or not, in the negative space. So right, right. if you're in the negative space, the key issue is consensus creation. Consensus cross-hierarchy and consensus cross-functionally. And that is very hard to do as a single salesperson or even as a sales team. So here, marketing can play a big role. So by just creating great reach, great awareness into this account around your company, but also drop content related to the different buying stages, both through, I mean, so let's say I have a dialogue with you and some of your closest colleagues, but I also know that there's a swear around you. There's pretty vast. To them, I might push lighter content because I at least want them to be aware of mega deals, maybe some of our references and also... Mm -hmm why you shouldn't grow with salespeople, but with marketing, so simple things like that. But with you and your core team, I will go way deeper. So I will go into what we call deal closing content, answering all your questions and everything. And that is mostly distributed by email. Anyway, so by measuring how we influence the top deals is more important than conversion into a lead. I like that. I, mean, I like that. You are generating leads as well. But, right. but if you focus, if that's your primary KPI, you will sub-optimize marketing. And I've seen that as well. I've, I've seen that uh, my attribution philosophy is whatever you optimize for is what you'll get, right? Like you can optimize for MQLs and you'll get thousands and tons of MQLs, but they, they won't close. The sales cycle is going to be forever. And, and that's not really helping your company, which leads me to you're going to need a ton of SDRs and account executives oh, yeah. and all that. Uh, so I want to ask you about, you were saying, right, like companies should not grow through sales, but a lot of tech companies grow through that inside sales model of SDRs, kind of executives. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's the, do you think those companies are doing it the right way or what no. do they think about? So inside sales and inbound marketing, those two concepts are, I mean, they're kind of interlinked. Those yeah. two concepts are amazing for a broad market and especially the long tail. So a big number of small accounts, because then your cost per, per sale is what matters, not your win rate. 
But when you're right. looking at the top of the scale, when you're looking at your most important existing accounts that you want to grow and the most important accounts you want to win, win rate is way more important. And the problem with an inside sales model, I mean, you can have that, keep that on the long tail, but use the negative discipline on your, your medium size and large accounts. Because if you're using, I'll give you a story. So if you're using an inside sales model, on a big account. First of all, if you imagine you have a skyscraper, it's 17 floors and it has five, so minus one, minus two, minus two, minus four, minus five. On floor minus five, underneath four parking lot floors, you have Stefan and his team. You know, there's a bit low ceiling, so they can't really stand up. When you flush the toilet, they can hear it. Uh, Stefan and his team are super interested in function features. But when you talk to managers, directors, VPs and the C-level, they, they are not so deeply interested in those details. So with them, you need to talk about the, the change drivers, the category choices, and the subcategory choices, and especially the VPs and the C-level. So if you run a classic lead generation approach based on inbound marketing or inside sales, you, you typically request a demo very early. And who signs up for the demo? It's definitely not the VPs and the, the C-level or the board. They're not signing up for demos. It's Stefan. Right, right. So then you get this. Uh, and if you, and let, let's, so it's Stefan most of the case. And he's too far down in the org. If it is a higher manager or, or especially a VP or a C-level and you throw in an SDR or a BDR, typically quite junior, I mean, that person is blowing the case because right. you only get so many chances with a top account. So instead, you need to immediately send in your senior executives. You can't have the BDRs and the SDRs and even worse, like a telemarketing company at the front. Uh, you, you can do that in, this, in the game of the long tail. That's perfect. Continue to do right. that in the long tail, but don't do it. You will destroy the market on the on the large accounts and the medium-sized accounts i love that yeah because at that level there's not that many chances that we get right there's, we have a limited number of opportunities hmm. and you don't want to burn those opportunities by not telling the right people yeah uh the, the inside, another comment on that so the inside sales model i've spoken a lot both with michael eckert from the casm group and and my mark organ who founded eloqua and influitive the three of us kind of agree on this. Um, so when you are about 15, 20 million dollar ARR, if you're so this is particularly common in the SaaS community, then you have the BDRs, the so lead generation, BDRs, SDRs, and then you you get the demo and then you bring in a senior exec. That's a horrific model for the matrix organizations. Again, great for the long tail, but not for the matrix organizations. So for SaaS companies in particular, this is really popular and they deploy it all across the board. But the three of us have agreed that when you are about 15, 20 million dollar ARR, you typically need to go upstream. You need to go to the larger accounts. And, and here the game changes. It's all about consensus, selling higher up. You can't do demos. You need to, you need to sell in a different way. Um, and, and here again, win rate is absolutely crucial. You can't have one in a thousand. That is, no, it's, it's not okay. You need to have like every right. second or two out of three or something. So, so here you need to really, you need to create the awareness in the organization. You need to build up the thought leadership. You need to connect, 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 connect with a lot of people. You need to gradually become so important that 
there's no way out. I can give you an example. So one company that we worked with, uh, we we tried to we tried to approach uh, the biggest shipping company in the world, Maersk, from De Denmark. And mm -hmm. I mean, they're just one number one. Right. That's Maersk, and they're kind of half the world market. So if you fail that one, <laughs> yeah. So we 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 visited their LinkedIn profiles. We took three three people and really promoted the faces. And I was because I was I was running marketing and sales at this company. This was just after the Megadis research was was launched, uh, and we we're promoting myself and two other individuals and the company. We wrote articles. We used ads to them. We visited the LinkedIn profiles. We created a very high presence, media based. So eventually they reached out and wanted a meeting, but it was not a demo meeting. So we, we flew down to Denmark. I remember coming there, it was the three of us and uh, they were eight people. I was two from the C-level and a few VEPs, so very high executives. Yeah. And I remember the comment they made, they were like, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we didn't think you would have time to meet us. Because wow. you guys, it's, you seem so successful and so busy that we're we're happy you're here. And I, but I had to say, because obviously this was the fruit of this kind of media presence. Right, right, right. So, so I said to them, you know, guys, you are number one on our priority list. So of course we're here. Uh, right. I didn't want to play a game with them, but uh, but this was coming to that meeting compared to the Stefan meeting when you have a demo with some tech guy further down. It's a completely different game, and they quickly bought a pilot, and now it's a big rollout. So, so we we kind of start on the right level with this high presence and thought leadership, both around the company, around us as individuals. It's a completely okay. different game. You cannot achieve that with the inside sales model. You cannot. It's just impossible. I love that, uh, Christopher. I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're coming to the top of the hour. I don't know if you have five more minutes. Yeah, sure. Perfect. Uh, I have a couple of final questions because we're talking about these big deals, right? One of ones, one of not too many. Uh, and there's a lot of risks that come with those type of deals. And I, I know that on the Mega Deals book, you talk about um, how to control and mitigate those risks. So what, what should marketing and salespeople think about or, or be aware of the potential risk in these type of deals? And how should they think about preventing those risks from actually happening? Right. So, so uh one behavior that we've seen is very successful in, in the larger deal space is to be aware of the risks, not the risk the customer is taking when not using you, but actually the risk they are bringing, the new risk that you are introducing. So by using you and your solution, they're adding new risks. So what we've seen is that the best people are actually, the, the, they're showing the risks, just early saying, so just, you know, if we agree on this, these are the risks you will be taking together with us. Out of these seven risks, four of them we can mitigate easily. This is how we mitigate them. Three of them are harder to mitigate. So we two of them, two of the remaining ones we can slightly mitigate. One of them is actually still on the table. So uh, by being transparent about the risk and proactive about the risks, you're instilling a lot of trust. And larger deals are very dependent on trust. If the, if if the on the contrary, if you go, no, 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 don't worry, it, it, all of that is right. covered you'll be seen as a bloody salesperson. A right. business person, a business person is more CEO-like. They're going, Marty, actually, if we do this together, these are the seven risks. Let's talk through them. 
How do you the, share that? Do you share that in an article? Do you share that on a, on no, a call? It, normally, we recommend to do it in a meeting. So in the, in the in whole sales process, you actually, but you want to introduce it early. Um, right. But then in your marketing, what's important, you kind of want to prevent the, you want to at least prevent the perceived risks. So by just increasing the brand awareness, showing some reference cases in marketing from the same industry, you're reducing the perceived risk. So that's how marketing can easily uh, approach it. I like that. Yeah. I love that. I, I'm thinking about how to like, apply it for my own agency as well. Uh, yeah, uh, it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, Christopher, I, again, I don't want to take too much of your time. I do have one final question that we ask all our guests. It's a bit of a selfish question. Um, I'm currently 25 years old. I wonder if you could get on the time machine and go back to when you were uh, 25. What's one piece of advice that you would tell yourself? Uh, at that age so I, th I think you've actually cracked the one I hadn't cracked when I was 25 so I didn't listen enough to mm. other accomplished people about their failures and successes I think you're doing that already in your podcast I guess that's kind of the most for you uh, so I, I was 32 when I realized that learning fast is more important than short-term prestige which is my own quote mm. <laughs> <laughs> learning fast is more important than short-term prestige that's the only like quote that. i've coined <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one it's a good one why do we need more when we have a good one <laughs> yeah uh what else i think that is the absolutely number one for me uh and that has transformed my life uh when i realized it i think i became a better friend i became a better leader i i became better at making decisions because i was in the early years uh, very driven by the prestige, I, I still am. But I, I realized that I need to I need to put learning fast before prestige. So whenever there's a conflict, if I if I'm in a meeting, for example, and I know, okay, Marty's talking about something that I don't know, the prestige me says keep quiet and pretend you understand. The learning fast me is saying, Marty, uh, I actually don't understand what you're talking about. And, and what I realized doing that, I even do it extremely sometimes people are coming up to me after meetings going thank you christopher asking <laughs> i was wondering the same and and you know so all of a sudden you become a spokesperson for, for people they're like thank you for asking those questions i always wondered the same you i'm so glad that you take that from <laughs> and you you ask them you know i like that awesome uh, i i love that stuff i i it's good i appreciate that christopher thanks thank you so much for sharing and again thank you so much for being here uh it was a Pleasure to talk to you. Uh, for everybody listening, we're going to put links to Christopher's book, to Christopher's uh, site, Christopher's LinkedIn here. Please check it out. It's great stuff. I've done an hour plus of research and it's amazing. I think it's going to be very helpful. Sales people, marketers, CXOs, it's going to be great stuff. Uh, Christopher, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marty. My pleasure. Thank you. And for everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Thank you for so much for your attention.